If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 12 with me. Luke chapter 12. Beginning at verse 49, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is God's word. May he bless its reading this morning. We have been working our way through Luke's gospel, and we come to this text this morning, and from Jesus' own words here, we see that it is His saving work that will, in fact, divide humanity. It will divide humanity into those who experience salvation because of their faith in Christ and those who do not put their faith in Christ and will therefore experience judgment. And before we begin to unpack the details of that in this passage, we really should pause here at the outset And just reflect for a minute or two about the willingness of Jesus to speak hard words. Many of us do not like to hear hard words, particularly when they're hard against us. We like to hear people speak hard words against others very often. Particularly if those others have offended us or we don't like them in some way. But what we see, what we have seen, is Jesus' complete willingness to speak hard words to anyone who needs to hear them. In fact, there are many who have an idea of Jesus in their minds where he never confronts, he never makes demands, and he never puts his thumb on the throbbing pulse of their sin. And if that is their view, if that is your view of Jesus here this morning, then you need to know that is only a pale reflection, an imitation of who Jesus truly is. He is not simply a Savior who meets felt needs. He is a Savior who meets our deepest spiritual needs. In other words, anything less than a, than a Savior, a Jesus who is willing to speak hard words, is an ineffective Savior. See, Jesus spoke hard words because we are a people with hard hearts. We need to be confronted with reality from God's perspective, not just our perspective or Hollywood's perspective or politicians' perspective. We need to understand that Jesus is a Savior who gives His salvation away freely, and yet to those who accept it freely, not because of any work that they themselves have done, Jesus makes demands on their life because of who He is. We need 
Jesus to come and to press in on our sin, to make us squirm, to make us sorrowful until we are led to repentance, that we might experience joy and the freedom of holiness. So when we come to a passage like this, we shouldn't flinch. Jesus' words may sting, but we should not be ashamed of them. This is just as much the real Jesus as when he offers words of comfort and consolation for the weak and the needy. So out of the flow of this passage, of this this text of hard words, both for those who are Jesus' disciples and those that are not yet his disciples, we need to see a clear and consistent message. In other words, the application might be different for us depending on where we're at, on which side of the line that we're on. But the central message is the same. We must come to understand that Jesus is the dividing line for all of history and for all people. He separates humanity into only two groups, those who believe and those who do not. And from this reality in these verses, we must respond in three ways. First, we need to see that there is the determination that we must understand. There is a determination that we must understand. The hard words that begin our passage show Jesus confronting the wrong expectations that his disciples had. And he wants to make sure that they are clear, they are absolutely clear on why he came about what Messiah he would be. One of the persistent themes throughout all four Gospels is Jesus very slowly, very patiently, very specifically correcting the false ideas that people had about him. And here he wants to emphasize two things, two things that he has come And he is determined to see accomplished. Two purposes that he has come to fulfill. The first is this, that he is determined to bring about a separating blaze. A separating blaze. Jesus says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth. Now we like to hear when he says, I came to seek and save the lost. But we're not so sure about, I came to cast fire on the earth. What does that mean? Well, what kind of fire is this? Well, when you look in the Bible, the imagery of fire usually has one of two meanings. First, we see that it is a symbol for the fire of God's judgment on sin. So in Isaiah chapter 26, God is said to unleash his fire to consume his enemies. In Zephaniah, the day of the Lord's wrath is pictured as a day of fire. The same imagery is picked up in Hebrews chapter 10 and by Paul in 2 Thessalonians. But the imagery of fire is also used to speak of a process of refinement for God's people. Through the prophet Zechariah, God says that though he will judge his enemies, his fire will refine his people like gold and silver. Likewise, in 1 Peter, the fire of affliction is meant to remove the dross from our lives and refine our faith. And I think that there is a real sense in which Jesus has both of those themes in mind here. Both of them come together, much like in Hebrews 12, where we saw that our God is a consuming fire. So also here Jesus says he has come to bring fire that will at one time consume all that is opposed to his heavenly father and his will. And at the same time refine those that have been set apart from him. In other words, Jesus is bringing fire and for all those who have trusted in him, for all those that have believed, they will, they will endure this fire as it were, refined 
for the glory of God, and yet those that have not believed will be consumed by it. They will be wiped away from the earth so that all that is left are those that believe. Strong words from Jesus. And yet, from the very outset, this is what God was telling his people. This is what he's going to be like. Do you remember way back in Luke chapter 2? For many of you that have been here, it seems like ages ago that we were back in Luke chapter 2. And yet, what did, what did the priest Simeon tell Mary when he held the baby Jesus only a week old in his arms? He looked at her and said, he will be responsible both for the rising and for the falling of many in Israel. And so it is now Jesus says, I have come, I have engaged my ministry, and I have come to cast fire on the earth. And notice he says, and would that it were already kindled. He's saying, this is why I have come. This is why I have been sent from my Father. And therefore, I want to see my mission accomplished. I am determined to see that I fulfill his will for my life. And the culmination of that mission will not only be seen in the fire that he brings, but also secondly in his saving baptism. In his saving baptism. In verse 50, Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now notice, this is not the baptism that he experienced with John the Baptist at the outset of his ministry. This is something future. It has not yet happened. It is a baptism that he needs to be baptized with. So, so what is this? Well, at its simplest, the word baptism means immersion. It means to, to be plunged into something. And though I think it, it's, we can probably get it here, if we're unclear here, we can go to Mark 10 and understand what this baptism is about. Bat, uh, in Mark chapter 10, you see the disciples are vying for glory. They, they, they're arguing about who is the greatest among the disciples. And Jesus says, um, look, you need to understand that the road to glory is paved with suffering. You don't get glory unless you first suffer. And so he challenges them. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism I'm about to be baptized with? In Jesus' mind, the cup and the baptism are synonymous. Two different pictures of the same thing. Specifically, his saving work at the cross. When Jesus speaks of his baptism, he is looking forward to being immersed in the water of judgment poured out by a holy God against sin. Jesus is thinking about the total experience of pain, punishment, sorrow, and suffering that he is going to undergo. Why? That he might provide salvation for sinful humanity. Whereas the priests were instructed by God in number six to bless Israel, even as I have sometimes ended our services blessing you by saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Pastor Legan Duncan points out, Jesus will experience a different declaration on the cross. He will hear the Lord curse you and cast you away. The Lord turn from you. And condemn you. The Lord turn his face away and remove all joy, peace, and comfort from you. I don't think any of us want to hear that prayer prayed for us. And yet that is what Jesus himself endured for us. For us on 
the cross. He endured cursing in place of sinners, making atonement for their sin, that they might receive the blessing of life and forgiveness and joy in the presence of God. That, that's the gospel message. And Jesus says, here, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is focused in with laser-like intensity on what is in front of him. He is determined to keep moving in faithfulness toward the cross. Despite everything that Satan is throwing at him in terms of opposition and temptation, he is distressed, even consumed, with doing his Father's will. And why do we need to comprehend that? Why do we need to understand that? Because, dear Christian, because you need to to keep this thought in your mind, especially on the days when you do not follow Christ's example and you are not consumed with the Father's will. On those days when you lay down in your bed at night and you put your head on the pillow and you close your eyes and begin to think on the day and it suddenly occurs to you that you failed miserably to follow in the footsteps of jesus that day you failed to live in light of the gospel you failed to glorify god with your life even more so those days when we lay down and we close our eyes and we think back to the life that we lived that day and occurs to us that we actually gave no thought of god whatsoever that day We cared nothing for His Word. We cared nothing for His presence. We cared nothing for His Son. We literally lived our lives as if we were a pagan. On those days, take heart. Because though you were not thinking of Him, He has always been thinking of you. From the moment that He understood who He was and what He was there to accomplish, probably about 12 or 13 years old, Jesus had his people on his mind. He could not get them off. He could not put them away. And as he grew into manhood and and came out and presented himself before John the Baptist to be baptized in place of his people to identify with their sin, he is seeking the glory of God through the salvation of a church. Though we fail to remember him he never failed to remember us it was driving him with passion to go to the cross and be the savior that we need in christ there is a determination that we must understand and that determination for the cross leads to a division that we must recognize here we we need to see the division that we must recognize Jesus is making it clear to his disciples that what he's calling them to do, to be, is not going to be easy. Here, just in these verses, he's, he's kind of reaching the culmination of what he's been teaching them over the last chapter. He's told them of his own unyielding commitment to experience the judgment of God, to accomplish salvation for sinners. And now he looks at them and says, you've got to be prepared that a division is going to come because of my cross work. He says, do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And this division he speaks of will be seen, first of all, in obvious conflict. In obvious conflict. Now, some of you hear Jesus say that. You hear him say, do you think I've come to give peace on earth? No. And you say, hold on a minute. Isn't this what we sing about every Christmas, that Jesus is coming to bring peace on earth? Isn't that what the scriptures say? Didn't Jesus actually say he's coming to bring peace? 
And the answer is yes. In fact, just in Luke's gospel alone, we see several references to Jesus bringing peace. When Zechariah prophesies about Jesus' birth, he says he will guide our feet in the way of peace in chapter 1. Later in chapter 7 and 8, when Jesus heals those that are sick, he tells them, go in peace. How can they do that? Because Jesus is there in their midst. As we saw just a few months back, when Jesus commanded his disciples as they went out to preach, he said, declare peace upon the houses that you enter. What kind of peace? Peace that flows from Jesus' own ministry. So which is it? Is Jesus confused? Is Luke confused? Is he contradicting himself? Does Jesus bring peace or does he bring division? The answer is both. He brings both. For those who trust him, For those who look to Jesus and find in Him a Savior worthy of our affection, worthy of our worship, deserving of our faith, then He brings peace. Peace between us and God. In fact, He is the very source of peace in their life. But for those who reject Him, for those who say, I don't don't want a Savior, I don't want Jesus, then there is no peace. And there's result between the interactions of those who have peace with God and are calling to a different kind of life and those that do not have peace with God and care nothing but how they want to live, there becomes a division. There, there, is, there is friction and discontent and lack of harmony and therefore a division occurs. Opposition and conflict takes place. About four years ago, there was an editorial in the USA Today It was about the divide between science and religion. And the author of this uh, editorial commented that there appears to be no common ground between these two groups. You have uh, scientific atheists and you have uh, believing fundamentals, as he called them, fundamentalists. And he says that there appears to be no common grounds that we are always in conflict and never be reconciled. And yet he has a proposal in this editorial. A way to find common grounds that we can get along. The solution to the conflict in his mind is spirituality. Spirituality. Here's what he says. Spirituality is something everyone can have, even atheists. He says this spirituality needn't be a deity or a supernatural entity. We can all find our own sacred things. We can all have our own life-altering spiritual experiences. These are not necessarily tied to any creed, doctrine, or belief. They grip us on an emotional level rather than a cognitive or a rational one. Dawkins was quoted as saying that If he understood what he meant to be standing back at all of the universe as you look through a telescope at a black hole, if that was defined as a spiritual experience, then he would be okay with that. But if it meant anything related to God, then no, he wanted nothing to do with it. In other words, spirituality is okay as long as you don't talk about God. Have a spiritual experience devoid of deity. That was the common ground that should exist between us. That was four years ago. The reality is that's where we're at now. Think about the the academic world, the academy. Think about the arts community, even our political leaders. This is where they're out. It's okay to be spiritual, but you better not be religious. You better not talk about God. You better not pray in Jesus' name. What Jesus is saying here, there is no common ground. Other than the fact that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. That's our common ground. 
as people on this planet. Anywhere you go, any culture you're in, third world, first world, rich, poor, we all have this in common. We're made in the image of God. We're fallen image bearers into sin, and we need a Savior. Beyond that, there's nothing. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus is going to come and he's going to create division because he says, the most important thing in the world is not you, it's me. I am the most important thing in the world. Your life should be centered around me. And those who say, yes, we get it, we believe, and those who say, no, we don't, will be in endless conflict until Jesus returns. So here is the challenge, Christian. If what you teach and what you talk about and what you believe about Jesus does not separate you out in some way from everyone else around you who doesn't believe in Jesus, then you don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. If, 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 what, if what the way you're living in response to Jesus does not in some way divide you from somebody else who doesn't believe in Jesus, then you've got the wrong Jesus. You're not, you're not seeing who he is from the scriptures. He said, I have not come to bring peace, but division. That division will be seen in obvious conflict, but it will also be seen in our offended community. Our offended community. Jesus says, for from now on in one house... There will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Think back and think about just the reality of this for Jesus himself. You, you have at the outset Mary and Joseph being told by an angel exactly who Jesus is and what he's going to do, who he's going to be. And yet somewhere along the line, they still don't get it. Because as soon as Jesus starts his ministry, his family is opposed to him. He goes out and he preaches and, and, and they want to bring him back in the house. They think he's crazy. They don't put their faith in him. They don't follow as his disciples. It's not until he is strung up on the cross, dying for their sins, and more than that, conquers death by being raised up back to, back to life, coming out of the grave. God not allowing his Holy One to see corruption, but giving him resurrection power to come out. It's only then that everything that he has said begins to make sense and they believe. So here is Jesus coming, the Savior saying, not just I will create division, but that he himself will experience division. He will experience opposition and offend even his own family by being the Messiah. And so likewise today, whether it's in large communities like this church or our denomination or this country, or whether it's in the intimate communities of our families under one roof, with fathers and sons and mothers and daughters, Christ will divide people. He divides them between those that believe and those that do not. And we can do our best to get along and to be loving, and we should do that, but at the end of the day, we need to know there's going to be conflict. Because again, Jesus makes exclusive claims about himself and to those that follow him, about how they use their time, about how they use their money, what their priorities should be, and how they worship. And those claims cannot be just brushed under the rug. You can't just say those things only matter on Sunday. That's not who Jesus is. If that's your Jesus, you don't have the right Jesus. In just, in just a minute, we're going to sing. Jesus, be first in everything. That's the Jesus of the Bible. First in everything. In everything. Now, 
As I think about this, as I think about God's providence, it's times like this where you think, man, I'm, I'm not sure it's working, right? This is not the Mother's Day text I would have chosen, okay? But if we do trust in providence, and you say, we started this series, we've been working our way, and this is where we landed, okay, God, what does this text need, what do we need to hear today? As parents and even as mothers, what do we need to hear? Well, even though this passage may not be the Hallmark card kind of verse we were hoping for, it's still true, and it's deadly serious. Wherever our children are in regards to Christ, the worst thing we can do is ignore the issue. The absolute worst thing we could do is just say, I want to keep peace, therefore I will not bring up church. I will not bring up religion. I will not bring up Jesus. No, the most loving thing we can do, though ready for pushback, though prepared for division that may come, is to nevertheless clearly and lovingly and passionately and pleadingly look our children in the eye and say, you need Jesus. Just like I do, just like everyone does. You need Jesus. And if they reject that message, it will hurt. It will be painful, but it may not be forever. For God has promised that he will use the preaching, the clear preaching of the gospel, to bring his people to himself. That he will open their blind eyes. That he will melt hard hearts. So this is the hope that we have. If we do not back away from Christ's claims, if we really believe he's glorious and we hold him up that way, even to our children who may at first not like us, that he may one day give them faith and they may believe. It, it, is, it is hard to hear, not just as a mother, though may especially as a mother, but as a mother or a father, it's hard to hear that our primary calling is not to have our children like us. Somebody, somebody bought Ellie a shirt that says, my mom is my BFF. And it's cute and I like it, but that's not what the Bible teaches. She is not to be her best friend forever. She is to be her mother who loves her and cares for her even when the child looks her in the eye and says, I hate you for this. She nevertheless endures because she has confidence that God is right and the rest of the world be damned to hell. Jesus is the only way and we must hold him up both in our words and in our lifestyle. That this is true. This is essential or else we allow our children to go along with the rest of the world to hell. That may not be the Mother's Day message that we wanted to hear, but it's what God says clearly in his word today for all of us. We must be ready for the division that is to come, but we cannot, we cannot compromise to try and escape it. Because all we're doing is damage to our own faith and to the faith that our children might one day have. Finally, there is in this passage not just a determination we must understand, a division we must recognize, but also a demand we must answer. A demand that we must answer. So far, Jesus has been speaking to his disciples, but now, Luke says, he is speaking to the crowds. He's looking to all those that are gathered around who have not yet decided to follow him. And he looks to them and he puts to them two demands. First, he says that they must recognize spiritual truth. They must recognize spiritual truth. One of the things that I think is most frustrating for me, one of the things that is the worst for my blood pressure, 
are the comment boxes on blogs and articles and Facebook posts. There's always an internal war between saying, how are people responding to this? And don't go in there. It's just going to make you mad. I often don't win that war. And click, there goes the loading comments is what I see. And in the history of, of the entire human civilization are some of the stupidest things you've ever read in your life. Not just from a, that makes no logical sense, but I can't believe you would actually put that, in, you, that would actually come off that. You can't really believe that. The anonymity of the internet makes all of us more idiotic than we should be in real life talking to someone face to face. Nevertheless, I'm still surprised because of the age in which we live. I mean, this, this is the internet age. We have endless, endless information at our fingertips. I mean, I mean, I mean, I just saw a, an article about how, you know, Steve Austin is coming true. A fully bionic arm has just been okayed for use in the United States. So vets that have their arm blown off are now going to have a robotic arm. I mean, that, that boggles my mind at the creativity and complexity and, and, and the, the, the intelligence that God has invested us with. We live in that kind of age. In the 60s, we put a man on the moon. Now we're building artificial limbs for a man. And yet, we lack spiritual discernment. That's our problem. We lack spiritual discernment. And it was no different in Jesus' day. Notice what he says. He turns to the crowds and says, you see a cloud rise in the west. You say at once a shower is coming. And so it happens. When you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. When you read First Chronicles, you see there that there are people that we should all aspire to be. They are the men of Ishakar who had understanding of the times. So they knew what Israel ought to be doing and they did it in their day. That's what we should all want to be. To have spiritual discernment about the times in which we live so we know how to respond appropriately to what's happening around us. But Jesus is saying to the people in front of him, you lack spiritual discernment. You, you can't see what's right in front of you to know what God is doing. In the predictable climate in which they lived, he said it's very easy to see a cloud coming in off the Mediterranean and know it's probably going to bring rain. But here's the problem. God is at work right in front of your face and you can't see it. It's even more obvious than the clouds rolling in or the heat that's coming. They should have heard Jesus preaching as authoritative exhortations about life in God's kingdom. They should have seen Jesus' miracles as the very power of God on display. They should have seen the change in Jesus' disciples as the fruit of God drawing people to himself. Jesus' preaching, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' disciples, all that and so much more was right before their eyes. And they had no idea what they were supposed to do. They didn't respond in faith. And before you begin to feel superior, just remember, these are not... These are not spiritual pygmies. And these are people who, who grew up in a life that was more religiously oriented, more centered on God than any of us have ever grown up in. They probably had, even as mainly being illiterates, more scripture memorized than all of us put together in this room. So don't feel like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we have to stop. We have to look at ourselves and say, are we following down the same path? 
how much more now that we have the totality of God's word that we've seen, not looking forward, but looking back with superior clarity. 27 books telling us this is exactly who Jesus was and still is. Do we lack spiritual discernment that Jesus challenges them to? Jesus demanded that they, that they see from him because eternity depended on it. And more than that, in light of that even, he also demands that we repent of our sinful debts. That we repent of sinful debts. In verses 57 to 59, Jesus offers at first what looks to be a completely disconnected teaching from everything else. It's like he's talking about these high spiritual matters and all of a sudden he's like, oh yeah, and here's what you do when you go to court. And you're like, what in the world is he talking about? But what we realize, again, you have to think about what's the context We are to understand this, I think, as a parable about the very things he's just been teaching about. He says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? That's the hook, I think. That takes us from spiritual discernment into this parable. As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Why? Otherwise, he will drag you to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and the officer will put you in prison. And I tell you, you're not going to get out until you've paid the very last penny. Jesus is saying, you know, there's a, there's a time to fight and there's a time to settle. You're innocent, then you, you fight the charges. The false charges brought against you. But if you're guilty, you better try and settle out of court. Because if you go to the court and the judge finds you guilty, there's no wiggling out of it. Right? If you're looking at your accuser, you might be able to make a plea deal with him. Hey, look, okay, uh, I, I know I was wrong. I don't have all the money you need, but can I give you half of it? And, 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 and just right now, no fuss, and they'll say, okay, sure, do it. What Jesus is saying based on this principle is, look, there is a day of judgment that's coming where all humanity are going to stand before my heavenly Father. All the books of all the days of every person's life is going to be laid open and there's going to be a reckoning. And Jesus is saying, that day has not yet come. The day of judgment where you stand before the judge is not yet here. You are not here, ready to hear your sentence. Therefore, look to the Savior that He provides. Not making some kind of plea deal, but throwing yourself at the mercy of the judge and saying, I need forgiveness. I need mercy. And because God is merciful, He will do it. Look to me, Jesus says, and believe, and what you will find is not heaping condemnation on your head on the last day. What you will find is the joy of a Heavenly Father who has forgiven you and accepts you because Christ has already paid the debt on the cross. So Jesus can say, I've come to bring fire. But he can also say, the day's not here yet. Turn, repent, find mercy. And you'll only be refined. You won't be judged. For years I've heard that people often reject God because they don't want to be accountable to Him. I've heard that in the abstract and it makes sense. But I was really surprised this week to see someone actually admit it. Many of you probably read uh, the book A Brave New World by the author Aldous Huxley. Huxley died an atheist in 1963, and in one of his books, here's what he wrote about his atheism. Quote, I wanted the universe to be without meaning. When I studied whether the universe had meaning or not, whether there was a heaven or hell, when I looked at the question of whether the universe had meaning and whether there was an afterlife and a judgment day, I did not come to it as an intellectual exercise. I wanted the universe to be meaningless because I wanted to be able to live the way I wanted. 
To declare the universe meaningless was the only way I could possibly be liberated sexually and politically. He went on to say, I had to choose. Either I could believe in judgment and then I would be crushed under a load of guilt for all my life or I could not believe in judgment and then I could live as I want but live in an an existential despair all my life. Those are the only two alternatives. I choose freedom and liberation. Huxley was incredibly honest, but he was also incredibly wrong. He only saw two ways to live. He said, either there is a judgment, and therefore I'm accountable, and I'm going to be miserable because I know I don't meet the standard. Or, he says, I say there is no judgment, therefore I get to live however I want, but it's hopeless because there's no meaning to life. If there's no judgment, then we're not moving towards anything. There's, there's no end point. There's no meaning. So, so there's no sense of justice other than what messed up people come up with. And so I get to do what I want, but I'm hopeless and I die hopeless. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, let me tell you about a third way. It's called me. It's called me. Yeah, there is a judgment coming. But there's a way of escape. There's a way to be reconciled to the judge. A judge who has created the world so everything does have meaning. Everything is going towards something. But you don't have to live a life filled with guilt because I took the guilt for you. Jesus is God the Son, the only Savior of humanity who deserves all the love and worship of our lives. But He is also perfectly human. And He did the one thing we would not expect Him to do as the perfect God-man. He humbled Himself and He showed love to lepers and to criminals and to prostitutes. And He offered them forgiveness and life. And because Jesus has these two things wed together, you, you, you cannot just brush him aside. You cannot say, well, he was a kook. Well, you can. But then how do you have someone say something like, love your neighbor as yourself, which even atheist people say is one of the greatest ethics society has ever seen. Jesus is saying, you don't have to live a life of crushing guilt or indulgent sin. There's me. I will bring you freedom from your guilt because I've taken it upon myself. And I will give you freedom from sin so that you can, per- you can pursue holiness, not from fear, but from love, knowing God has loved you and demonstrated in sending me. So today, the call is clear. Understand that Jesus is the dividing line for humanity. Make sure you're on the right side. And if you claim to be a Christian, then make sure that your life is living in line with being on that dividing line. Make sure that you are one who finds joy, love, forgiveness, and holiness because you have found Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your son. God, we're thankful for the hard words that he speaks because so very often we play games with words. We only use hard words when we want to inflict pain in someone else. But God... There is a a good kind of hardness, a good kind of pain that comes to us and confronts us about the reality of our sin. And yet, Father, even in the midst of that hard word, you offer life, you offer forgiveness, you offer love and mercy and salvation. Oh, God, help us not to miss that. Help us not to miss Jesus this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.